This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, CJ here, your hazardous history helmsman, with another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast. This episode is going to be talking about one of the lesser-known founding fathers, who's in fact one of the most important, and if you're a believer in any ideas of of liberty and either little or no government, anything like that, is also quite a bit of a villain. And that, of course, is Robert Morris. The Urban Dictionary defines the term OG, or original gangster, as, quote, someone who has been around, old school gangster, end quote. The Urban Dictionary defines bankster as follows, quote, a portmanteau or blend word derived from combining banker and gangster, usually referred to in the plural form banksters to refer to a predatory element within the financial services industry, such as those offering too-good-to-be-true adjustable mortgage rates for homebuyers, end quote. Well, in this podcast, I'm going to argue that Robert Morris was America's OB, original bankster, even though, of course, he wouldn't have employed all of the specific practices that today we associate with modern banksters. Nonetheless, he clearly fits the character type, and in one crucial respect, not mentioned in the Urban Dictionary's definition of bankster, but which in my mind is a centerpiece of a full definition of the word bankster, and that is someone who uses the state as a means to acquire, increase, and safeguard massive wealth. So join me today as we dig into the story of Robert Morris, original bankster. But before we get more into Robert Morris, we have to do some shout outs to the newest Patreon supporters of the Dangerous History podcast. Several awesome individuals have stepped up since the last episode to help support the show. Big thank yous go to Gayula, Peter, Chad, Dustin, and Jonathan. Thank you all very much for signing up to help out the Dangerous History podcast over at patreon.com slash prof cj. 
Remember, if you pledge to support the show for any amount per episode, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record after that. And if you pledge at least a buck per episode, and by all means, feel free to sign up for more than a dollar per episode if you're so inclined, but for just a minimum of a dollar per episode, you will have access to special bonus episodes there on Patreon that are available nowhere else that I'm putting out every four to six weeks. So far since I started doing this, I've done two. I've done one called Dangerous History and Personal Liberation, and another on the history of samurai and ninjas. And the next one right now that I'm planning on doing is going to be about Operation Northwoods, which was a proposed false flag operation um, that was actually seriously considered in some of the highest circles of the U.S. government in the early 1960s, but was eventually deep-sixed. And at least some people believe may have been one of the many things that caused the defense and intelligence establishment to potentially be involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Now, on to Robert Morris. He is, especially today, one of the lesser known, quote unquote, founding fathers, a term I find highly problematic, but, you know, we'll use it sometimes anyway, just because it's in the vernacular. But arguably, even though he's not very well known, Robert Morris might be one of the most important of all the founding fathers to the way things actually turned out. He's not known for soaring rhetoric or brilliant written words the way somebody like Thomas Jefferson or Patrick Henry is known for for speaking or writing about liberty. And he's not even known for the clever quips and one-liners that one would associate with somebody like Ben Franklin. And so perhaps because of this, perhaps because, while well, he certainly could speak and write competently, he, he had no particular genius at those things. Perhaps that's why he's not so well known. Perhaps it's because, at least in part, a full understanding of Robert Morris and what he did might make people question the entire American Revolution and the way it turned out in the Constitution more than they usually are encouraged to do. Robert Morris is actually one of the very few individuals whose signature was on all three of the most important official documents in the history of the early United States. And of course, I'm talking about the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. He signed all three. It's only, a, I think, a few other guys, maybe only two or three other guys besides him. In the early years of the American Revolutionary War, Morris was in charge of supplying the Congress's war effort, in which position he faced, at the time and ever since, accusations of shady doings and unfair profiteering, though his defenders portray his assistance to the war effort as vital and downplay any accusations of improprieties or irregularities. And during the later years of the War of American Independence, Robert Morris was the closest thing the country had to a chief executive or a president within the national government. Under the Articles of Confederation, there was no separate executive branch. There was a position called President of the Congress, but it had little real power to it. But Robert Morris ended up in a situation where he was the czar of many things. He had almost absolute power over the central government's finances in the last three years of the American Revolutionary War. And he possessed many other powers in addition to that, including the ability to hire or fire anyone working for the Congress or for the military, the Continental Army. More than one of his detractors at the time referred to him as a dictator or some other term along those lines. 
He's received surprisingly little scrutiny by modern historians, especially by by really recent historians. He got a little bit more scrutiny in the late 19th and early 20th century. Historian Don Higginbotham in his book, The War of American Independence, says that Morris, quote, wielded more power than any other civilian leader during the revolution, end quote. And I think he's absolutely right. Only George Washington himself, General Washington, can be uh, plausibly said to have had as much power as Robert Morris during the War of Independence, especially the last few years. And by the way, there's there's a case to be made that Morris actually might have had more real power than Washington. It was just a more subtle power. But yet, you know, we've all heard of George Washington, even though, as I've tried to point out on several previous episodes, such as some of my American Revolutionary War episodes and my episode on the Whiskey Rebellion, you know, Washington's myth is not very connected to reality. And a lot of what we hear about him is whitewashed at best and bullshit at worst. But at least we've heard of Washington. Not many people today, unless they're they're big uh, buffs of the American Revolutionary era, have even heard of Robert Morris. And and of those, relatively few know or think much about him other than some sort of vague, well, uh, he helped pay for the Revolutionary War kind of thing. Decades ago, writing, I guess, maybe primarily in the 60s and 70s, historians Merrill Jensen and his uh, protege, E. James Ferguson, admitted that Morris's administrative savvy and the contributions he made to the war effort were positive, and they gave him credit for that. But they also saw him as a homegrown counter-revolutionary, as one of the key figures of the backlash movement against some of the more radical democratic and decentralist tendencies that so characterized the early years of the American Revolution. E. James Ferguson, by the way, wrote several scholarly articles on this, on Morris and on the role of Morris and his circle in sort of, uh, if you want to really be uncharitable, hijacking the American Revolution in order to foist a homegrown elite on the American people to replace the British elite that was being kicked out. And aside from some well-received scholarly articles, Ferguson also wrote a book entitled Power of the Purse, A History of American Public Finance, 1776 to 1790, in which Morris, of course, figures prominently. He also was the editor of Robert Morris's collected papers, which, if I remember right, ran to nine volumes. And uh, no, I have not. I have not read all of those. I've read some, you know, bits and pieces of some of Morris's, you know, the primary sources from him is letters and papers, but... Absolutely not even close to reading nine volumes of it. I think, considering how crazy the research for this episode drove me and how much effort it put into what I, what I did do, that if I were to read all nine volumes of Robert Morris's collected papers, I probably would end up committing suicide in the most messy and painful way I could conceive of. In a recent and glowingly positive biography of Robert Morris, Author Charles Rapoli, I think that's how you say his name, Charles Rapoli portrays Robert Morris as wonderfully short on ideology and theory for the most part, and as being all about pragmatism, just, you know, doing what would work and fix the problems of the day. And Rapoli argues that it was Morris's pragmatism that enabled the American Revolution to succeed without turning into as much of a mess of excess as some of the other revolutions, such as the French Revolution. 
Rapali also characterizes Morris as a proponent of the free market, which I find uh, rather problematic. I mean, it's true in regards to a few specific issues of the day that Morris's position on, on some specific things was more free market than his opponents. But to say overall that he's this prophet of laissez-faire is way off the mark when you look at the full picture of Morris's project, what he built in terms of the American economy and political system, which ended up being far more mercantilist than free market. So apparently Charles Rapali is just one of those people who thinks that things like a national bank, a huge national debt, and the significant taxes that are necessary to make payments on a big national debt, that these are all things that are you know friendly to the free market, which is a a notion that I find highly flawed uh, to be to be very you know nice about it. By the way, this notion of certain people being free of ideology is is also a notion that just in general I find problematic. Anyone who is at all involved in things having to do with policy or with ideas or anything, everybody's got an ideology. The only people who don't have an ideology of some type are people that are like severely mentally disabled. Anyone who's of even modest intelligence has an ideology. They absolutely do. Now, their ideology might not be fully expressed, um, you know, consciously in their mind. Their ideology might be self-contradictory and messy, but they absolutely have an ideology. I, I always am annoyed when you hear somebody being attacked simply for being too ideological or something like that. That doesn't mean anything because I promise you the person making that making that criticism has their own ideology as well. And the only reason they're criticizing another person for being too ideological is simply because the person they're criticizing has a different ideology than they do. But the critic in this instance is so enveloped and drowned in their ideology that they don't even realize it is an ideology. In other words, it's sort of like the old saying about how a fish doesn't realize he's in water because it just is what is. And the only time he realizes water is when he gets out of water. That's how it is with, with a lot of people who claim to be non-ideological. They absolutely do have an ideology. They're just so absorbed in it that they're not even conscious of it. Everybody who does even the slightest amount of thinking about important issues has an ideology. Again, it might not be coherent. It might not be something that they've thought through enough to be able to articulate it clearly, but they absolutely do have an ideology. An ideology is simply one's notion of how the world does work and one's notion of how the world should work. That's all it is. That's all it is. And so somebody like Robert Morris absolutely had an ideology. By contrast to Rapalai's glowing portrayal of Robert Morris, Murray Rothbard spoke of Robert Morris in satanic terms. He actually referred to Morris as, quote, the great Mephistophelian figure of the revolutionary era, end quote, in volume four of his series Conceived in Liberty. And Rothbard, in fact, devotes an entire chapter of that book to Morris's virtual takeover of the central government in the latter years of the Revolutionary War. But Morris's influence on American history did not conclude with the Treaty of Paris ending the Revolutionary War in 1783. His influence continued, and he exerted a large influence on things such as the writing and ratification of the Constitution, which of course greatly enlarged the central government's power. 
and he was the key figure in getting Alexander Hamilton into office as the first Secretary of the Treasury under George Washington's administration, in which capacity Hamilton succeeded in implementing many of the policies that Robert Morris had been pushing for years. And yet again, we hear less about Robert Morris than we do about many other quote-unquote founding fathers, even though many of them that we hear more about actually had less impact on the course of events than Morris did. Well, who was Robert Morris? Where did he come from? He was born in 1734 in Liverpool, England, and his father was, I, I think the term they used back then was factor. He was involved in the tobacco trade, sort of an agent involved in, in uh, importing tobacco from North America into Europe. At age 13, young Robert moved to Maryland with his father, who not long after that sent young Robert up to Philadelphia, where he began working kind of like apprenticing at the shipping and financing firm of Charles Willing, a very wealthy Philadelphian. And Robert showed a lot of aptitude for complex international business transactions and things like that, quickly became a rising star at the firm. And after the death of Charles Willing in 1754, Charles's son, Thomas Willing, made Robert Morris a junior partner in the firm, which eventually became known as Willing Morris & Company. This was a major shipping and trading firm in the British Empire. They owned a bunch of ships, and some of their ships even traded with places as far-flung as India, the Caribbean, and of course Europe. Robert Morris's star in both the economy and the society of Philadelphia, one of the most important colonial cities, steadily rose. He became a very prominent Philadelphia citizen, respected as a very skillful and savvy businessman. Now, as tensions between the British government and the North American colonies increased in the 1760s and early 1770s, Morris sided with the people who were upset and opposed many of these taxes, especially, for example, the 1765 Stamp Act, one of the most controversial of the many taxes that were you know, tried against the colonists during this era. And in fact, it was Robert Morris's opposition to the Stamp Act, which caused his first little entries into local politics, some of the, the meetings and committees and whatever that were organizing opposition in Philadelphia. But as things began to heat up and get more and more drastic in the 1770s, Robert Morris always distanced himself from the radicals within the movement, those who were arguing in favor of perhaps even independence and of really, you know, militantly defending liberties and rights and all that. He always kind of didn't quite go all the way with those people. But he was so important to the politics and economy of his area that he always found himself part of important committees, even though he was very moderate, to say the least. In fact, between 1775 and 1778, Morris served, sometimes overlapping, you know, multiple of these at once, on the Pennsylvania Council of Safety, the Pennsylvania C uh, Committee of Correspondence, the Pennsylvania Legislature itself, and also he served as part of the Second Continental Congress. So he was kind of had, had his finger in, in a lot of important places. When fighting broke out between British troops and, and American militia in Lexington and Concord in 1775, Morris was handed the task of figuring out how to import gunpowder and other supplies to the Americans who were, at that time, starting to besiege the British army at Boston. And this was not an easy task in light of the British bans and naval blockades that were already in place. But Morris did figure out how to get several tons of gunpowder smuggled in very early on. And I have to say, if this kind of stuff was all that he did, I would probably think Robert Morris was cool as hell. 
If all he did was, like, figure out how to smuggle in guns and gunpowder and keep the revolution going, hell, even if he made a decent profit on the side of, of doing that, I wouldn't really have a problem with him. I'd, I'd see him as, as a pretty cool guy. But, of course, as time goes on, he gets more and more involved in other matters and starts really trying to steer the political content of independence in his own direction. Now, as the Congress began moving more and more towards outright declaring independence as 1775 turned into 1776, Robert Morris emerged as one of the obstacles to independence. He emerged as one of the key figures within the so-called moderate or some, some historians would call it conservative movement. Those who were sympathetic to a lot of the colonists complaint about British taxes and so on, but who did not want to declare independence. This is how historian Merrill Jensen, in his book, The Articles of Confederation, an interpretation of the social constitutional history of the American Revolution, described the political faction to which Morris belonged, this faction that stood in the way for a while of declaring independence. Quote, the conservatives who had opposed the revolution and who went along with it only when they saw no alternatives, as well as many who were not opposed to independence, wanted supreme political authority placed in a central government which could exercise a coercive power over the states and their citizens. They valued the British connection for the very definite advantages it gave the ruling classes of the colonies. When faced with the fact of independence, they demanded the creation of a government which would in some way function as a bulwark of conservative interests, in other words, as a substitute for the British government." End quote. So Morris and a lot of the people in his political camp really kind of liked being in the British Empire, even though they objected to specific things that were happening in the 1760s and 70s, like the Stamp Act, for example. But they eventually saw which way the wind was blowing, saw that the, the forces pushing for independence really had the momentum. And when it, that became clear to them, they did reluctantly step aside and allow independence to be declared. But then from that point onward, people like Robert Morris... We're spending their whole time trying to make the new American, you know, replacement government post-independence as similar in its in its operations to the British government as they possibly could. So, for example, Robert Morris actually was one of the people who voted no on independence in July of 1776. On July 1st, 1776, the Pennsylvania delegation voted actually four to three against independence, and Robert Morris was one of the four in the delegation who voted no. The next day, July 2nd, Robert Morris and John Dickinson, who was one of the other Pennsylvanians who was most strongly opposed to independence, decided to just be absent. They had, um, I think, supposedly Ben Franklin or John Adams or both had kind of persuaded Morris and Dickinson to just not show up because they were, you know, determined to never vote yes on independence. But, you know, they saw it as a way they could kind of keep their honor, just to stay out of it, let independence pass while they weren't there. So the next day, July 2nd, Morris and Dickinson are, are absent from the Congress. And this allows the Pennsylvania delegation to vote three to two in favor of independence. So you often hear in, you know, many books and even, you know, movie and show depictions about John Dickinson being an obstacle to the Declaration of Independence. But not as frequently is Robert Morris thrown in there, even though he was right there, right there with John Dickinson in the way of independence. Well, even though Morris had voted against independence, he ended up signing the Declaration once it was written. He signed it in early August of 1776. You know, the whole notion of all the guys signed it like the day it was, you know, voted on by the Congress is not true. 
they kind of dropped by when they could and signed it, you know, over the course of, of weeks. Morris signed it on August 2nd and said of, of signing the declaration, quote, I am not one of those politicians that run testy when my own plans are not adopted. I think it is the duty of a good citizen to follow when he cannot lead, end quote. Now, this to me makes him sound like the ultimate opportunist, in some ways almost like an American version of Talleyrand. If you don't know who he is, look him up sometime. Very, very interesting figure that comes out of the French Revolution. One of the few people that was able to continually be, have a, an important position within the French government, even as the multiple phases of revolutions, you know, overthrew each other one after the other. I think of Talleyrand almost as like the, uh, the French Revolution's Jack Sparrow. But it's funny how, in light of that statement, what Morris said about, you know, eventually putting his signature to independence, even though he'd voted against it. I am not one of those politicians that run testy when my own plans are not adopted. I think it's the duty of a good citizen to follow when he cannot lead. When you look at what happens as the war goes on and Morris ends up in a very, very high position of power and uh, even running into the post-war years, look at what happens when a lot of his – just remember that quote when I talk about some of the ways he kept pushing for ideas that at least initially were rejected, ideas having to do with creating a bigger, more centralized, more powerful federal government. And you'll see he doesn't step aside and, and go with the flow when those ideas are, are rejected. He keeps coming back with them. He doesn't take no for an answer there, but instead he just keeps at it in various guises, often through surrogates such as Alexander Hamilton, until at last finally he got his way and most of his wish list was implemented by the time George Washington left the White House. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Despite his opposition to independence, Robert Morris was placed on two key committees within the Continental Congress. The first was the Secret Committee of Trade. This was the committee that handled the purchasing of weapons and ammo and other military supplies from other countries. This committee at the time used a form of financing that was very similar to the modern practice of cost-plus purchasing from military contractors, in which certain firms are selected as government suppliers and are then guaranteed a certain level of profit. This reduces or eliminates competition among potential government contractors and gives artificially uh, lucrative deals to politically connected firms. Murray Rothbard says that it, quote, was soon clear enough that control of this committee was the open sesame to special privilege and high guaranteed fortunes to be made out of the revolutionary effort, end quote. Once he was on this committee, Morris quickly got it to make major deals with his own firm, Willing and Morris. 
Oftentimes, these sorts of deals would insulate Morris's firm from any real risk. So, for example, one deal made with William Morris for gunpowder said that the government would buy the gunpowder at a rate of $14 per barrel, which was a fairly high rate at the time, I think. Now, you know, this might be the the high purchasing price might be to counterbalance the risk of smuggling in gunpowder uh, into a war zone. But the deal said that Willing and Morris would get paid the $14 per barrel, whether or not the powder actually safely arrived in America. Now, other members of this committee did also profit handsomely, but Willing and Morris definitely profited the most. One fourth of all the payments by this committee went directly to the firm of Willing and Morris. And with basically no oversight, Morris freely and somewhat chaotically mixed personal and private funds, which later resulted in accusations that in today's terms we would call having private profits and socialized losses. Now, in addition to the Secret Committee of Trade, Morris was also on the Secret Committee of Correspondence that was in contact with foreign leaders and financiers. Rothbard writes of his membership on these two committees, which were closely connected and presented a lot of opportunities for big deals, quote, Thus catapulted to the very seat of power in the American colonies, the highly conservative Morris was able to make himself the center of a veritable plunderbund, which unabashedly and systematically looted the public purse for their private profit, end quote. Morris also ended up on the Maritime Committee and the Marine Committee, which dealt with naval warfare and privateering. And, you know, to his credit, he donated one of his own personal ships to the war effort. Now, looking at Morris's overall conduct on these committees, Charles Rapoli is overwhelmingly positive. He writes, quote, He and Franklin were the only delegates assigned to both secret committees, and thus were the sole members privy to all confidential contacts with foreign agents and governments. At the same time, through the secret committee and the Marine Committee, Morris took part in all the efforts to supply the armed forces. Nor was his engagement limited to policy and supervision. His firm, his ships, and his personal contacts were all deeply engaged in carrying out government assignments, end quote. Speaking of the largest early deals, Rapoli admits, quote, The lion's share, more than half the total, went to Robert Morris. In each of these transactions, Morris was essentially making deals with himself. But this interpretation fails to take into account the circumstances at the time and the thinking of the men involved. Remember, at this point, the Congress was little more than a loose alliance of colonies, a debating society with no administrative apparatus and no formal authority outside its own chamber. Everything that was to be done had to be done in-house, end quote. So there you see, you know, Rapoli points out that, yeah, there's this arrangement that today we would consider a gross conflict of interest. But he then says, well, that was kind of somewhat more okay in the circumstances of the time. Now, by the way, Morris had started to become a friend and close ally politically of George Washington from fairly early on in the war, in part because Morris came through on some important financial and logistical deals to help Washington's army, and in part because both men were sort of moderates or conservatives, however you want to describe it, within the independence movement. They were guys who favored independence, but who opposed any significant changes 
to society or anything like that. They wanted it to still be a, a rather oligarchical mercantilist system just with an American elite at the top of it rather than a British elite. The friendship and the alliance that these two men made would endure through the war, through the writing of the Constitution, and through Washington's presidency. Now, during the war, I'll admit, Morris did advocate some things that were positive from a free market point of view. For example, he did support free trade most of the time. He once wrote, quote, I assert boldly that commerce ought to be free as the air to place it in the most advantageous state to mankind in general, end quote. And also, after the Continental Congress overprinted paper notes and caused hyperinflation, he opposed the solutions that some people were pushing at the time to deal with this, namely price controls and legal tender laws. He pointed out these were bad solutions that would make all of the problems worse. And I give him credit for being dead right about that. But in his efforts to fund Washington's large conventional military campaigns and his efforts to structure the country's post-war financial and political system, he advocated and in many cases helped implement many policies that smacked much more of British mercantilism than of Adam Smith-style laissez-faire. Now, I want to mention a little bit about the so-called Silas Dean affair, as this has some bearing on Morris and his career. Silas Dean was a wealthy Connecticut businessman who became one of America's earliest diplomats. The Continental Congress sent him to France early in 1776, and from there he did get some financing and some arms for the American war effort, but he did not succeed in getting the full overt support of the French government. He did a very sloppy job of bookkeeping um, and you know keeping track of all his transactions, even worse than what Morris was doing on the secret committee. And Arthur Lee, who was another American diplomat in France at the time, complained about Dean's conduct. Because of this, Silas Dean was eventually recalled by Congress in 1778. And there was a big political battle in Congress over Silas Dean. And basically there was a split in which the more radical members of the Congress at the time, led by the Adamses of Massachusetts and the Lees of Virginia, attacked Dean, while the more conservative members of the Congress, including Robert Morris and the rest of the people like him, which mostly came from the middle states like New York and Pennsylvania, defended Silas Dean. Now, Congress did find some serious problems in Dean's accounting, but I don't think he was ever like officially convicted of an actual crime, but he certainly lost his, his uh, position. Dean went back to Europe in 1781 and began openly working for the British and loyalist cause. After the war, he died mysteriously on board a ship that was headed to America in 1789. Interestingly, in the 1860s, some papers from King George III revealed that Silas Dean had been working as a spy for the British the entire time, even before he you know, publicly started working for them. Now, all this stuff going down having to do with Silas Dean was one of the things that caused Robert Morris to decide to leave the Congress and go fully into his private sector business concerns. Really interestingly, Thomas Paine at the time aggressively went after Silas Dean and anyone who defended him, including Robert Morris. In fact, Paine had been critical of Morris for a while and had been accusing him of, you know, misappropriating funds and so on. 
And later, when Morris himself was under investigation by Congress, Payne pointed out, you know, in print that Morris's books from his time on the secret committee were still not fully settled and that money was still not accounted for from that. But interestingly, a few years later, when Robert Morris was returning to the Congress, this time as superintendent of finance, Thomas Paine, who by that point had apparently um, come over to the so-called nationalist point of view quite a bit, and who also by that point was broke and desperate for money, ended up getting hired by Robert Morris to write pro-nationalist, pro-big-government you know, big government propaganda. Now, there were lots of cases, as Rothbard and others have pointed out, in which it certainly seems that Morris may have unfairly profited from his relationship with the government, and in particular that one secret committee. To be fair, it's true, there were multiple occasions in which Morris used his personal funds to make up for shortfalls in the congressional money. For example, he personally paid George Washington's army in order to keep it in the field prior to the Battle of Princeton. But the problem was, whether it was intentional or not, Morris was simply not doing a very good job of keeping track of all the intricate, complicated deals he was making, and he really didn't do a good job keeping a clear line between his personal transactions and the government's transactions. So by the time Morris was getting ready to leave the Continental Congress in 1778, more and more people were starting to question his integrity in regard to his dealings while on the secret committee. Henry Lawrence, Thomas Paine, and some other people influential in the Congress began asking some very aggressive questions and even making some accusations. The result was a congressional investigation in 1779, which ended up acquitting Morris of any official wrongdoing based on the documents and witnesses that were produced. And the committee ruled, quote, the said Robert Morris has clearly and fully vindicated himself and has acted with fidelity and integrity and an honorable zeal for the happiness of his country, end quote. So not just not guilty verdict, but man, saying all these nice things. But despite that official finding, some people were still not fully convinced of Morris's innocence. The evidence was less clear cut than that committee statement I read a moment ago indicated. There was still just so much difficulty in making sense of all of Morris's records that people really weren't 100% sure that shady things hadn't gone down. Even Charles Rapoli, who mostly defends and praises Morris throughout his entire biography of him, admits the following, quote, Considering the scattered accounts of the secret committee and the chaotic state of wartime commerce in general, a perfect verdict on Morris's business practices is probably impossible, end quote. But of course, Rapoli then says, quote, while it is true that Morris greatly augmented his fortune during the course of the war, it is also clear that his commercial endeavors while in office, and particularly for the secret committee, were often conducted at a loss. It cannot be stated conclusively which activities profited him the most, but Morris had a variety of legitimate enterprises that were each more lucrative than his government work. It was in his private capacity that Morris became rich, end quote. So you see Rapoli kind of tacking back and forth over, you know, oh, yeah, there's it's still not clear. There's still some things that, you know, we might not even ever know. But I'm still pretty sure that he made more money off of private sector deals than off his government work. 
Well, anyway, after leaving the Congress under somewhat murky circumstances and returning to private business ventures, Moore has also served for a little while in the uh, Pennsylvania legislature. But in 1781, he was brought back into federal office. By 1781, the finances and the logistics of the American war effort were in an absolutely horrible state. And Robert Morris was appointed to be the superintendent of finance for the central government. This was despite the questions that some people still had about his previous dealings and uh, all, all that stuff. Many people still thought that he might be the only person who could salvage this messed up situation. And so the Congress actually voted unanimously for Morris to get this job as superintendent of finance, although it should be noted two Massachusetts radicals, namely Samuel Adams and Artemis Ward, abstained from the vote in protest. Now, Morris would serve as superintendent of finance until 1784, after the war was officially over. He made some controversial demands on Congress prior to taking this job. The fishiest of these, perhaps to modernize, was an agreement that he could maintain all of his private business connections. And in fact, he remained a silent partner in several firms that had huge dealings with the government during these years. As Don Higginbotham puts it, quote, a present day secretary of defense or occupant of another cabinet chair is expected to sever all his business ties, salaries, as well as investments on entering the government. This was not a hard and fast rule of conduct 200 years ago. End quote. Morris also demanded something that was perhaps even more controversial back then, which was the right to fire anyone who was working for the central government. Now, Congress granted these two conditions to Morris, and this was one of the things that alienated people like Samuel Adams. When you look at Morris's job at his, his role there, his position superficially looks like he's just secretary of the treasury, but in reality, he had way more power and say-so over the government than a Secretary of the Treasury in modern times would. In the words of Charles Rapoli, quote, he would be responsible for every aspect of governance but the disposition of the army in the field. At a time when the central government was comprised of a single legislative house, he would fill the role later reserved for the President of the United States, end quote. Now, to his credit as Superintendent of Finance, Morris did significantly reduce government expenditures. He did make a lot of things more efficient. You know, for example, he introduced something that didn't exist when he was on the secret committee, and that is competitive bidding for government contractors. But in addition to all that stuff, which, you know, seems all, all well and good to anybody reasonable, he also began doing a lot of other bigger things. He began trying to implement policies that were a bit more controversial than just streamlining government spending, policies that were aimed at significantly affecting the long-term development of the American political and economic system. And a lot of these policies are things that later will come to be identified with the Federalist movement, policies aimed at creating a much more centralized and much more elitist system altogether than what existed at the time. Now, in his capacity as financier, Robert Morris put together a report entitled On Public Credit that's very interesting and, in fact, very similar to Hamilton's much more famous report on public credit, which he submitted to Congress a decade later when he was Treasury Secretary. In this report, Robert Morris went a lot further than just recommending some things to help deal with the immediate issues of funding the war. 
He sounded off on a lot of other issues and in general is arguing in, in favor of the type of system that later gets implemented by the Federalists. Among other things in this report, Morris argued that taxes were a net positive for the economy. He said that taxes helped increase a nation's wealth. He said they stimulated industry by making people work harder in order to have to pay the taxes and that this ends up being good for everybody. And he said it was also a good thing to have have taxes because it makes people economize more in their personal expenses. This, by the way, from the man who lives in a lavishly decorated three-story mansion that was the largest in Philadelphia at the time, I believe. Now, he did make some token statements about, oh, we got to make sure taxes aren't too onerous, especially on the poorer members of society. But basically, here's a guy saying taxes are not only – they're not a necessary evil. They're a positive good, right? Now, after arguing for the virtues of taxes, Morris then proceeds to argue for the virtues of having a national debt. And one of the reasons he said it would be good was that it would, quote, give stability to the government by combining together the interests of moneyed men for its support. End quote. He really liked the idea of having wealthier members of society profiting from owning government debt, which, of course, is paid for by taxes on all the people, because he argued that those people, the wealthy people who would own the government debt, were the most qualified to make good use of funds. So, in other words, it, Morris is arguing that it would be good for society if the wealthy had their wealth augmented by having the government redistribute taxpayer money to them. And because of this, Morris consistently argued from then on that all of the central government's debt needed to be funded at full face value, which, you know, it was a very questionable thing whether that could be done or whether that ought to be done. But Morris was unequivocal. And this was becoming more of an issue because increasingly debt was how the war was being funded. By 1779, the paper continental dollars that were issued by the Congress had pretty much hyperinflated and lost much of their value to the point they were almost worthless. And so the Congress increasingly had turned to what they called loan certificates in order to keep funding the war effort. Now, these are kind of interesting. They're a form of public debt, but it's somewhat different from a typical bond. Unlike a bond, these certificates were not brought into existence when someone loaned the government money. But instead, as Murray Rothbard describes it in his book, A History of Money and Banking in the United States, quote, they were simply notes issued by the government to pay for supplies and accepted by the merchants because the government would not pay anything else, end quote. So these were government debt, but they were an unusual kind of debt. They weren't really representing loans. They were more just sort of like IOUs. The Congress issued so many of these certificates, 600 million over the course of the war that they quickly lost value just as the continental dollars had. And they were being accepted at much less of their face value relative to, say, hard, hard currency. And it was these certificates that actually comprised a lot of the federal debt after the war. Now, these notes could have just been allowed to basically depreciate out of existence and out of circulation, which is, by the way, what happened to the continental dollars. But while Robert Morris was perfectly happy to let the continental dollars inflate out of existence... He was adamant about not letting these loan certificates suffer the same fate. Now, this is how Murray Rothbard describes Morris's motives in A History of Money and Banking. Quote, Morris, leader of the nationalist forces in American politics, moved to make the depreciated federal debt ultimately redeemable in par and also agitated for federal assumption of the various state debts. 
The reason for this was twofold. A, to confer a vast subsidy on speculators who had purchased the public debt at highly depreciated values by paying interest and principal at par in specie, and B, to build up agitation for taxing power in the Congress, which the Articles of Confederation refused to allow the federal government. The decentralist policy of the states raising taxes or issuing new money to pay off the pro rata federal debt, as well as their own, was thwarted by the adoption of the Constitution, which brought about the victory of the nationalist program led by Morris's youthful disciple and former aide, Alexander Hamilton, end quote. So all the things that we associate with the Federalist Party and people like Hamilton coming into effect after the war, Morris was already advocating and laying the groundwork for as the war was wrapping up. Morris supported a very strong central government with significant taxing power and a large permanent national debt. Not coincidentally, these are all goals that are supported by Alexander Hamilton later when he's Secretary of the Treasury. Morris was also one of the earliest advocates of creating a central bank. In fact, he got one established by Congress in 1781. This was known as the Bank of North America. It was the first fractional reserve commercial bank in the U.S., and it was also a privately owned central bank that was mostly copied from the Bank of England. Robert Morris explicitly touted this bank as being uh, not only financially helpful to the government, but also being a great way of centralizing everything even more by winning over the loyalty of wealthy, powerful people, winning that loyalty away from their state and local affiliations towards the central government instead. As Morris put it in a letter to John Jay, quote, one very strong motive which has impelled my conduct is to unite the several states more closely together in one general money connection and indissolubly to attach many powerful individuals to the cause of country by the strong principle of self-love and the immediate sense of private interest, end quote. And in a letter to Ben Franklin, he put it this way, I mean to render the bank a principal pillar of American credit so as to obtain the money of the individuals for the benefit of the union and thereby bind those individuals more strongly to the general cause by ties of private interest, end quote. And of course, this would later be Alexander Hamilton's rationale for many of his policies when he was serving as Washington's Treasury Secretary. Now, the plan was for this bank to be able to pyramid a lot of banknote credit on top of, of a reserve of specie of hard currency. I believe, if I remember right, a lot of the initial money actually came from France to open the bank up in the first place. Morris did not raise as much from private American investors as he had hoped. But the bank opened its doors in 1782, and it had several powers and privileges that other regular banks would not be allowed to have at the time, including a monopoly on the issuance of paper money. The strategy that the bank followed was to use most of its newly created paper money to buy government debt, which would then be paid off by the taxpayers, and the bank would serve as the depositor of Congress's funds. Now, Robert Morris thought that this uh, paper banknotes that would be coming out of the bank would be stronger currency than the congressional paper money, the Continentals, that had been printed before. And he was probably right, but it was still a lot more inflationary than just hard money of some type would have been. 
and the bank never lived up to what it was supposed to be. Even with all of the powers and privileges it had, the Bank of North America ran into problems because of the market's lack of confidence in its notes. Morris himself, I think, realized the bank was in trouble. And by 1783, it had been converted into just a regular old bank with the federal government no longer having a majority ownership role in it. Now, I want to mention that a lot of the things Morris was doing or trying to do during his years as superintendent of finance were not operating in a vacuum. In these latter years of the American Revolution, while Morris was financial czar of America, he was part of this small, loose, you know, not not organized or defined, but just kind of, you know, friendly and, and political alliance type thing of elite men who in many ways perfectly prefigured the Federalist movement of later years. In fact, many of them are the same people who later show up as leaders of the Federalist movement. The types of guys who wrote and ratified the Constitution, the types of guys who, as the Federalist Party, dominated the national government from 1789 to 1801. Now, at the time, and we're talking like, you know, 1781 to 83 or 4, these guys didn't really have a name for themselves, but later historians started to refer to them as nationalists with a capital N. When you look at who these guys were, most of them were military officers, especially high-ranking ones. Or they were merchants like Robert Morris, you know, businessmen. Or they were holders of large amounts of government debt with a direct financial stake in Morris's plans getting implemented. Or perhaps they were some combination of all of those things. Now, Robert Morris was arguably the key figure in this nationalist movement. But there were others as well. One of them was Gouverneur Morris, who is a guy who was a close sidekick and confidant of Robert Morris, although the two were not related, even though they had the same last name. Also important in the movement was George Washington himself, as well as several other top generals. And then there were some other people. There were some young up-and-comers like Alexander Hamilton, who was only in his 20s at the time. And some other prominent figures of the time period who linger around, such as James Wilson, John Dickinson and John Jay, to name just a few more. Thomas Paine even began to work with this group when, as I think I mentioned before, Robert Morris hired him to crank out pro-nationalist propaganda. Now, the overriding goal of this nationalist cabal was to create a much stronger central government to rule over the states. And they initially, in the early 1780s, tried to do this within the Articles of Confederation framework. But eventually, after they failed to get a lot of their wish list within that system, they eventually came around to scrapping the Articles of Confederation outright and replacing it with the new Constitution in 1787. A lot of historians have argued for years over whether um, political ideology or economic self-interest, which one was the primary motivation making these guys do the things they did. My own view is that, honestly, it's an impossible question to settle. In part due to there's no there's a lack of objective metrics. There's no clear cut way to tell. For example, could you really quantify or prove, let's say, it's 62 percent political beliefs and 38 percent economic interest or whatever? I mean, how could you even say that? And also the fact of the matter was for most of these nationalists and later as they're known federalists, economic self-interest and political ideology are completely inseparable. So I don't think there's any way to separate those two things. Now, there is a structural defect setting aside all, you know, ideologies and whether you're, you're for more centralized government or less centralized government. There is a structural defect with the articles. There, there's a, a disconnect. 
And these guys understood it. And of course, their solution was more big government, more centralized government. But the defect, the disconnect of the Articles of Confederation is it creates a government, a central government that's not quite a central government. It creates something that's kind of neither fish nor fowl. What I mean by that is that the Articles of Confederation give the Congress the power to raise and use an army and give to the Congress the power to borrow money, but then gives them no taxing authority to actually fund these things. Now, this is a problem because it meant that what happened in the early years of the war that really almost destroyed the whole thing financially was that you have this Congress that is raising an army and they can only pay for that army by running up debt and printing money. And that's what happened. And so, you know, if you're going to start from the point of view that the right way to wage this war for independence is to have a huge standardized centralized army, which, you know, I would quibble with. And, and you probably know this if you've listened to my Revolutionary War series already. But if you take for granted the large centralized conventional army as the way to go, then clearly you have a problem of how do you fund it in a way that actually makes sense and is relatively sustainable, right? So I'm not saying the nationalists had no no points that they made that were valid in their critique of the way things were going. I'm just not sold on all of their larger goals they were trying to accomplish here. So they're pushing for taxes. Between 1781 and 1783, the nationalists tried to get a national tariff on imports. Now, to be to be fair to them, they weren't pushing for a really high one. They only wanted a 5% revenue tariff. This was not a protective tariff. And the idea was simply to have something to try f- starting to fund Congress's debt and other expenses. And this idea of having an import duty ultimately got the support of 12 of the 13 states. But of course, the Articles of Confederation require unanimity in order to be amended. So having just one state not on board caused the proposal to fail. But the nationalists didn't give up their hope to create this stronger, more centralized federal government that they wanted. And they, led by Morris, fought hard to keep the national debt alive and, in fact, grow it. The states might have taken on the debt and discharged it, but they were blocked from doing so. Now, why did Morris and the nationalists prevent the states from taking on the debt, even though that might have worked? The answer is because they wanted the debt to continue to exist even after the war ended, because they saw the debt as the rationale to leverage into creating a more powerful central government. So in other words, it's almost like a problem-reaction-solution situation. They're making sure that the national debt continues to exist and continues to grow. They're making sure that nobody, such as the states, figures out a way to deal with it. That way the problem doesn't go away. That way they can keep presenting a larger, more powerful, more centralized government as the solution to the problem that they're helping to, you know, exacerbate. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Not only did the nationalists fight to keep the federal debt from being taken up by the states towards the end of the war, but they worked to enlarge the federal debt as much as possible at the end of the war and in the the immediate aftermath of the war. Historian E. James Ferguson describes it this way in a 1969 article in the Journal of American History, quote, 
Congress declared the large sums owed to the Continental Army to be a federal responsibility and refused to allow the states to assume payment of them. Under Morris's guidance, the Nationalist Congress clung to the federal debt and enlarged it. At the close of the war, which, by the way, was 1783, at the close of the war, the debt consisted of about $11 million in loan certificates. By 1786, when the bulk of the unsettled accounts had been examined and new securities issued in recognition of claims against Congress, the debt had risen to more than $28 million. A debt this large was justification enough for the impost, indeed, for a whole battery of federal taxes, end quote. In other words, Morris and company were claiming the federal government needed more power to handle the national debt. At the very same time, they were working to make the debt as large as possible and to prevent the states from potentially handling it. E. James Ferguson also points out that the nationalists, most of whom, by the way, were staunch Anglophiles, understood what they were doing and why. They knew very well that, quote, funding the English national debt had consolidated the revolution of 1689 by creating a vested interest in the new regime, end quote. What he's referring to is the so-called glorious revolution in England and the Bank of England being created shortly after it, and the fact that it took on the, the existing national debt and funded it and thereby essentially bought the loyalty of the English elite. Morris and all these people, they knew English history. They were very much Anglophiles. They were doing this very deliberately in order to buy the loyalty of the American elite to the central government so that these wealthy elite types would have a not just an ideological preference, but a personal economic stake in the idea of continually strengthening and enlarge, enlarging the government. It had worked well in England and Morris's gang wanted to see it done in America. Morris himself put it this way in a 1782 report to Congress, speaking of the government's loans that were owed to wealthy Americans, quote, They give stability to government by combining together the interests of moneyed men for its support, and consequently in this country a domestic debt would greatly contribute to that union, which seems not to have been sufficiently attended to or provided for in forming this national compact, end quote. Morris also argued that by paying the owners of the national debt, it would increase the overall business capital in the country. Of course, how do you fund that? The answer is you fund the payments on the debt by taxing everyone. So in reality, taxing the people to pay the holders of the government debt is is not and cannot be a net economic gain to the country. It's simply shuffling around resources. It's simply redistributing wealth via taxation from those who don't own a piece of the national debt to those who do, which probably in most cases means you're redistributing money from the poorer people to the elite. And of course, since you're giving the wealthiest Americans a way to profit from having a national debt, one consequence is going to be that the wealthy, who we all know always have a bigger influence on government's policies, the wealthy will always tend to favor a large and ever-increasing, never-shrinking national debt. And isn't that pretty much most of American history since then? Of course, Morris understood this, and elsewhere he claimed this was good. As, as I mentioned in his report on public credit, he said, yeah, it's a good thing that the government will redistribute wealth into the hands of those who were already wealthy, because they're the ones who know best what to do with it. Now, as I think I kind of mentioned before, Morris and the Nationalists, they opposed the paper continental dollars that had lost so much of their money, 
But their alternative was simply to substitute privately issued banknotes, which, while they might in many cases be a bit more sound than the paper money printed by Congress, would still be inflationary because of the whole fractional reserve aspect. The banks would pyramid these notes on top of a relatively small reserve of actual hard currency. Now, this would solve the problem of having a popularly elected legislature being pressured to overprint money for political convenience. But the problem is it'll substitute all the problems associated with fractional reserve banking, such as the business cycle. See, for example, Murray Rothbard's take on the Panic of 1819, which he argues is largely due to the operations of the national bank that existed at that time, which I guess by then it would have been the second bank of the United States, as it was called. Well, anyway, Morris and the Nationalists, they were very much opportunists looking for any any excuse to keep pushing their, their program of a larger, more powerful, more centralized government. And in fact, as the war was coming to a close, some of them were disappointed because the war, they thought, gave them great justification to keep building the state. Very similar to the whole notion of, of uh, Crisis and Leviathan in that great book by Robert Higgs. Robert Morris himself privately expressed some desire that this would keep going so that there would still be this impetus to get his agenda pushed through. Quote, I wish most sincerely and ardently for peace, but was I to confine myself to the language of a patriot, I should speak in another manner and tell you that a continuance of the war is necessary until our confederation is more strongly knit until the sense of the obligation to support it shall be more generally diffused among all ranks of American citizens, and until we shall acquire the habit of paying taxes, the means we possess already, end quote. Now, sadly for his hopes at the time, the war actually did end. And Morris resigned shortly thereafter, in part in protest against the Congress for not having passed all the taxes he wanted. But the nationalists who seemed to have faded away around 1784, were not gone. And they were simply waiting for an opportune time, and they got it in 1787 with the Constitutional Convention. Most of the big movers and shakers of the Constitutional Convention had been part of what the historians call the Nationalist Group back in 1781, 1782, three, thereabouts. And Robert Morris was a delegate representing Pennsylvania at the Constitutional Convention. He personally said relatively little at the convention, but a lot of his sidekicks and surrogates like Governor Morris and uh, James Wilson, you know, guys who were very tight with him and very much on the same page on the issues, these were some of the most talkative guys there. And what they were pushing was pretty much always things that Robert Morris backed. Maybe by this time, Morris had gotten a lot of uh, tactical savvy, and I think he might have realized by this time period that he could get more of what he wanted by having surrogates do it rather than by doing it himself. By the way, at the convention, it was Robert Morris who got Washington appointed as president of, of the convention, and George Washington stayed at Robert Morris's house during the months the, co the convention was meeting. After the Constitution was ratified, Robert Morris was the main reason why Alexander Hamilton was chosen, quote-unquote, by George Washington to be the first Secretary of the Treasury. Washington originally asked Robert Morris to do it, and Morris said no, and he suggested Hamilton. And the reason was that, that uh, Morris and Hamilton had had an exchange of letters previously in which Alexander Hamilton 
profess to basically believe everything that Robert Morris believed about finance and politics and so on. And so Robert Morris knew that Hamilton would be dependable for those sorts of ideas. But unlike Morris, Hamilton was this young, relatively unknown guy. He might be able to get more done than Morris would, who already had this reputation as being kind of what today we would call a bankster. So basically, having Hamilton at Treasury is the equivalent of having Morris at Treasury. And while Hamilton was running the Treasury Department, Morris was one of the first two U.S. senators representing Pennsylvania. And he was an important political ally there in Congress for Hamilton's policies. When Hamilton got his plan through Congress for assumption to have the federal government take over the remaining war debts of the states and to fund everything at full value, this knowledge became known to the public in New York City very quickly, but word spread very slowly to the rest of the country. And this allowed certain individuals to basically do what today we would consider insider trading, to take their special advanced knowledge of what was going to happen, that the government was going to pay off all these debts at uh, face value, and to go on a buying spree, buying up loan certificates at a tiny fraction of their face value because people who owned them in many cases had no idea what was coming, while these insiders knew that these things would be paid off in full. In other words, they had special knowledge that most Americans didn't have. Now, personally, I don't have a problem with insider trading when it's simply knowledge of what a business is going to do. I don't think that should be a crime myself. But the one instance in which I do think insider trading should be a crime is the one instance in which it's usually not. And that is when a politician uses secret insider knowledge of something the government is going to do in order to profit at the expense of the general public. That's the one case in which I would be a supporter of it, of insider trading being illegal, and that's the one case in which even today it's often completely legal to do that. Thomas DiLorenzo describes the effect of this insider knowledge in his book Hamilton's Curse. Quote, This in turn created tremendous speculative opportunities for Hamilton's New York City and New England friends and supporters, including the financier Robert Morris, who was Hamilton's legislative liaison in the U.S. Senate and Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuler, among many others. New York speculators, having been given this inside information, embarked on a mad scramble up and down the eastern seaboard to purchase government bonds from helpless and unsuspecting war veterans at prices as low as 10% of full value, end quote. So, in many cases, you have poverty-stricken war veterans who have no clue that the bonds are eventually going to be paid in full, who sell these bonds to cunning speculators for pennies on the dollar. Now, these same average Americans, including many war veterans, who were basically conned out of their bonds, would then be the ones paying a lot of Hamilton's new taxes that he rolled out while he was Treasury Secretary, including tariffs, excise taxes, including, by the way, the one on whiskey. See episode 66, I think it is, the Whiskey Rebellion. These same people who have their bonds purchased from them at pennies on the dollar because they were clueless that they would eventually be funded in full. These are the same people who are then taxed to pay off those bonds and thereby profit the wealthy people who bought them. As Robert Morris intended and as Alexander Hamilton finally got fully implemented, wealth would be redistributed by the government from the poor to the rich. And the rich would become richer and thus the central government would become more powerful because it would be more um, supported by the elite. Meanwhile, the poor would become poorer, and as is so often the case when this phenomenon happens, it's not due to any natural free market forces. It's due to government policy, 
Now, the elite Northeastern speculators who made this windfall on Hamilton's uh, debt funding deal were basically all members of what was quickly evolving into the Federalist Party at the time. And in fact, Robert Morris himself is estimated to have profited about $18 million on this stuff, which, of course, in today's terms is hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, for a guy who did so much and made so much money, Robert Morris ended in, in a surprisingly terrible state financially. After leaving the Senate, Morris got involved in some very large, complex business deals, the, the details of which I admit I have not fully researched all of them. But things went very badly, long story short, and he ended up bankrupt and in debtor's prison for three years from 1798 to 1801. He was released due to a bankruptcy law that was passed by Congress in 1800, which was written in part specifically to bail him out of prison. And after he got out, he continued to have health and financial problems and died in 1806. Robert Morris is not a very well-known figure, certainly not as well-known as he deserves to be, whether for good or ill. But he's still a very divisive figure to those who have studied him. In 1937, historian Thomas Abernathy wrote, quote, The idea that Robert Morris financed the revolution out of his own pocket is purely mythological. The truth is that the revolution financed Robert Morris, end quote. Now, I guess that might be a bit of an oversimplification in some ways, and the truth is probably a bit of a mixture of Morris financing the revolution and vice versa, but let me put it this way. Even if the claims of things like fraud and graft and unjust profiteering are exaggerated or perhaps even totally false, I would still be willing to put Robert Morris on the DHP villains list for all of his activities in helping to bring about the centralized elitist, mercantilist, Hamiltonian system, which really should be called the Hamilton-Morris system or something like that, and thereby being at least as much as Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the American crony capitalist bankster system. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping 
after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.